Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be concluding our series in Deep Dive, which is a series that we've been focusing on all summer and asking the questions of how does the gospel uh, answer some of the questions that we all have. And we threw out a lot of questions this past uh, summer, all the way from dealing with uh, questions of, of, of theology. Does God exist? Is Jesus the only way? Uh, we tackled some, some uh, practical questions like, what is marriage? What is singleness? Uh, what is sexuality? And how does that all play in? And uh, we also focus on the topic of special needs and so forth. So uh, today we're going to be concluding that series by asking the question, how do we, as Christians, live in a world that may be in opposition to who we are and what we stand for? How do we live in a hostile world? And so the text is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to ask God's uh, uh, blessing on this uh, sermon, and then we'll go right into it. So let's read uh, together. Matthew uh, chapter 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, in these short words that you give to us on the Sermon on the Mount, you remind us what our role in society is. That you did not create us to be people who are absent from the world, but in, in some practical, simple ways, you called us to engage the world. And yet, Lord, as we deal with the conflict of what's happening in our society, in many ways that goes uh, in opposition to our faith, how do we stand firm for what we believe? And we pray that you would just lead us now and help us to answer that question based upon this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this past summer, uh, we asked the questions that many of you asked. These are the questions that we sort of threw out regarding all these other sort of both philosophical, theological, uh, practical questions. So as we sort of sum up uh, today, the question that is before us is the question of engagement. How do we as Christians engage the world around us? You know, throughout Scripture and history, we're reminded that this world is not our home. That this is not our permanent place. That God has something else for us. And in the midst of the world that we live in, we should also be reminded this. That in this world, that there will be many tribulation. As uh, John says in his epistle in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Do not be surprised if men hate you. Because the, the world hated Jesus and crucified him. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 16, Dear friends, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as something that was strange happening to you. But rejoice as much that you participate in the suffering of Christ so you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and the God of rest 
on you. So as we see that throughout Scripture that there were uh, uh, principles and guidelines to remind us that we are living in a world that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are, are two different worlds. And we as Christians are sort of in between, aren't we? We are bridging the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and bridging the kingdom of uh, light to the kingdom of darkness. And so how do we engage in that world? You know, on one hand, you see that Christians are not very favored in, in, in the world around us. Uh, for example, uh, there's an organization called Open Door. And they look at the statistics of persecution around the world. And in 2015, they, they, uh, or 2019, I'm sorry, they give some of these statistics that are pretty shocking. That there are 245 million Christians in the world that are experiencing high levels of persecution for following Christ. One in nine Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. There's been a 14% rise in the number of Christians who are experiencing high persecution. 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith this past year. 2,625 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, or sentenced to prison. 1,266 churches were either burned or attacked. And if you look at all these different statistics, that the number is not decreasing, but is actually increasing. There are 105 churches attacked every month. 11, 000, 11 uh, Christians are killed for their faith every single day. One in six Christians in Africa experience high levels of persecution. One in three Christians in Asia experience high levels of persecution. And one in 21 Christians in South America experience high persecution. So we see that this is actually part of sort of a global thing that's happening. Even in America, we as Christians are sort of painted by certain political affiliation as a certain type of people. And so the growing hostility of Christians is growing even in this country. Well, this morning, how do we engage with that? Do we sort of build our own little fortress and kind of hide out? Or do we uh, sort of fully engage to the point that, that, that we sort of look exactly like the world around us? You know, uh, I remember something that happened to me. And, you know, there are times in our lives where don't you ever wish you could sort of turn the clock back a little bit? Or maybe, you know, there was a th time where you wish that you could take that moment back. Maybe you said a word or, or did something and said, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Uh, there was an incident that happened um, when I was at Brea Mall a few years ago. And I was coming out of my favorite store, the Apple Store. <laughs> I had fixed my computer. And I was walking out, and I was holding my little Mac Mini. And I went into the, uh, or I was, I was actually delivering it to the Apple Store. So I was still in my car, driving around the parking lot, looking for an open space. And you know, if, if you've ever been to Brea Mall, uh, it's, it's pretty packed. And there are times where you just can't find parking space. So you just have to go around and around and around. Finally, I saw three guys coming out of the, uh, out of the door. And these three guys were getting into their car. And I said, oh, great. I get that parking space. So I kind of waited for them to get into their car. At the same time, a lady had walked out, an older lady, and she was going to her car. So right there, I had two spaces in front of me. I was so happy. I said, like, I can't wait to get, at least I, I, I now have a choice of one of these two uh, spaces because there was no cars behind me. Well, I saw something there that, that I wish I would have done something. At the very moment that they, they were pulling out, they were pulling out at the same time. 
And you, you ever seen an accident in front of you <laughs> that you know it's going to happen and you just stand paralyzed? And I was thinking, I was like, oh man, I wish I would have done something. But as they were pulling out, boom, they hit each other. And I thought to myself, only if I could have honked or said something. I wish I would have interfered, but, but it, there's something that, that just made me just an, in, you know, a bystander. And I think for a lot of us, that illustration reminds us of Christians. That we as Christians sort of are seeing what the world is doing, and instead of engaging, we start sort of sit back and watch, and hopefully everything will turn out. And in reality, things don't always turn out. So what do you do in the midst of living in a culture that is in opposition to what we believe? Well, I believe that rather than fighting the world and, and acting in hostility, which is sort of the typical response, if somebody do, does you wrong, you do them wrong even more, right? It, it, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Our human reaction is somebody attacks us, we attack them. Is that the way that God calls us to engage the world? Well, today uh, I want to refer you to a passage, a sermon that Jesus preached. It was uh, found in Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you who know uh, this particular section of Scripture, Jesus is now preaching uh, to, the, to the masses. And in Matthew 5, he begins the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. He's standing on the mountain. All these people are gathering. And Jesus is now teaching his disciples what it means to be kingdom followers or kingdom uh, uh, participants. How do we advance God's kingdom? And it's interesting that he begins chapter 5 with a series of, of sort of what we would call Proverbs, sayings. And he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the uh, meek. And he gives these statements and he says, blessed, oh, by the way, the word blessed there in the Hebrew means happy. If you do these things in the kingdom of God, you will be happy. But the very last blessing is the very subject that we're talking about. Notice what he says here in verse uh, 11. He says, blessed are you people. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 10. Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all things, kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The very last blessing that Jesus gives, ironically, is on this whole subject of persecution. He says, happy are those who are persecuted. And so, now the question is, then how are we to engage with that persecution? That's why the next verses are so important. Because in the next two verses, Jesus now describes for us sort of the analogy or the metaphor of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a follower of God in the midst of a world that is persecuting you, in the midst of the world that is in hostility to what you believe. The first thing he says is this, that we are to be salt. And if I were to sort of use the uh, statement, we, we need to pass the salt. And what does salt mean? It means righteous influence. So notice this in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, I'm going to show you this picture of salt here. Uh, all of you know what salt is, right? Uh, you know, we put it on sort of as spicing uh, or spices to sort of add flavor. But in the 
First century, when Jesus was talking, when he said you are the salt of the earth, he was not describing just a little bit of flavoring. What Jesus was describing was something that was actually very precious, almost divine. As one uh, scholar says, salt has always been valuable in human society, uh, often more so than it is today. During the period of the ancient Greek history, it was called theon, which means divine. And the Romans held that except for the sun, nothing was more, more valuable than salt. Often, soldiers were paid in salt. That's how valuable it was. And so the expression, he's not worth his grain of salt, comes from that uh, understanding. Because salt was so valuable. And so the question is, is why was salt so valuable in the first century? And the answer to this has to come with uh, technology. See, in, in our modern day world, we have technology that preserves meat. Right? So you go to the grocery market, you put it in the freezer, or you put it in the refrigerator. It cools it so that it sustains the meat for a longer period of time. So you could take it out, you could put it on the grill, and, and so forth. Well, in the first century, there was no refrigeration. And so the only way you could preserve meat or fish was to salt it. So it did two things. It added flavor, but it also was a preserving agent. So in many ways, what Jesus was saying is this. You as Christians, you as followers of, 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 of in, in this followers of Christ, your primary purpose in a hostile world is to preserve the decay of the world around you. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, in the ancient world, salt was primarily a preservative because they didn't have deep uh, freezers. Incidentally, uh, he says that we are to call to preserve to the decay of society. Have you ever thought that your role in modern day world is to be an influence of righteousness so that the world doesn't decay even more? If God took all the Christians out, the, the society would, would crumble even more. But what we are to be as righteous people of God is to demonstrate our saltiness by our righteous influence. You know, when I think about uh, social decay, and oftentimes uh, we think about just morality, right? But there are other aspects of decay. And what happens in society is this. With the absence of God, what we tend to do is we tend to just do kind of what we all, uh, all please. And so in the Old Testament, you see the story of the book of Judges where people do what is right in their own eyes. What we as Christians are, are to be active ingredients, in the world to, to stop the decay. Now, you think about this. We as Christians are to demonstrate righteousness. How? Not just from our morality, but also from our lifestyle. Uh, Edward Gibbon, uh, he was a historian, wrote a book, interesting book, called the, Decline, the, Fall, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, in which he sort of outlines the reason why the Roman Empire fell. Now, Roman Empire in human history was probably the greatest empire that ever existed. It covered all of, of, of Western civilization. But the interesting thing about the Roman Empire was this, that it did not fall because of invaders from the outside. It fell because there was decay on the inside. In other words, that decay, the moral decay, actually contributed for the sort of the, the, the outside uh, a collapse. It's like if you had a house where uh, it looks great on the outside, but it's been infested with termites. Uh, that, that when the storms come, boom, it, it knocks down because all the infrastructure has been eaten away. And Edward Gibbons listed five things that 
happen in society. One, the rapid increase of divorce. That the undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home. Uh, higher and higher taxes and spending of public monies uh, for the circuses and the populace of the people. The mad craze for pleasure. Sport becoming every year more and more exciting and more and more brutal. The gigantic building of armaments. The real enemy was within the decadence of the people, but they were just spending more money on just trying to protect it from the outside. But the last thing he says is this. Decay of faith and religion. In other words, when people were removed from what they believed uh, and faith began to fade, what ended up happening was that there was no substance for people to, lay, uh, to rely on. And so Jesus says this, that one of the ways in which we deal with the hostile world is rather than demonstrating hostility, we demonstrate our saltiness by our righteous influence. So how we manage our families, how we manage our kids, how ethical we are at our, our jobs. All these things are contributors to keeping society intact and healthy. But the second thing is this, that we can lose our saltiness by compromise. Notice what he says here. Uh, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Then he gives a warning. But if the salt can lose its saltiness by being, becoming unsalty, and how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. Now, what is Jesus saying here about salt losing its saltiness? Well, we all know that the chemical compound uh, for salt is sodium chloride. One of the things about salt, though, it's a stable agent in itself. However, in the biblical times, salt, when it was mixed with impurities, lost much of its, its effectiveness. When the impurities got too much... It would dilute the, effectiveness of, uh, dilute the effectiveness of salt. And as a result, it would lose its saltiness and it never could be salty again. I think the point that Jesus is making here is this. That we as Christians are to be active engagements to stop the decay of, of, of society. To preserve what is good. Preserve what is right. Preserve uh, what is uh, of God. And at the same time, not to compromise who we are. It's so easy as Christians, isn't it, that, that when we are engaging in the world around us, that instead of being separate from the world, we become just like the world. Whether that be sort of a, a political discourse, or whether it be sort of even moral engagement, that, that the Christians can easily drift away and compromise by engaging so much in the world that there's no distinction from what we believe. And a lot of times, we're Christians in name only. But it is conviction that causes our faith to make an influence. There was a, a man, uh, Joseph Stoll, who was a uh, past president of Moody, a Bible institute in Chicago, was talking to an older pastor who had lived through the uh, Soviet Union back then when, when Russia was purely communist. Um, and he was talking about uh, this, this pastor and, and his story of how he held on to his faith. And so he asked him the question, so tell, tell me about your faith. What happened? And the pastor said, well, Stalin's reign was the worst. I had two KGB agents come to me and say, we'll take care of you, pastor. You stay the pastor of this church and once a week give us a report on every one of your Christians. Work for us. This pastor thought, Wow. What they're offering me is that I could be safe, but I would have to endanger all my people. 
He says, I cannot do that to God. And I can't do that to my flock. So what they did was they sent him to prison camp in Siberia. He endured forced labor and cold for 10 years. But he did find other Christians in the camp. And God used these believers to fulfill a mission. And what ended up happening while they were in prison together, that there were other Christians. They began to huddle together. They began to pray together. And eventually when they were released, this pastor became a carpenter building towns for Stalin. And then he would go out to 60-mile radiuses, and there he would create these fellowship called churches. And to there, there are hundreds of churches in Siberia as a result of these small group of prisoners that eventually were let go. The point that he's, he made was this, that we did not compromise our faith. Instead, even though we suffer for what we believe, the gospel spread as a result too often Christians can lose their effectiveness by looking too much like the world. Last thing is this. We can preserve the world through a consistent lifestyle. So how can we keep the world from rotting, decaying? Well, I think the, the way we do it is not by preaching at the world, telling the world how bad they are. That doesn't work. And we've tried it for too long, that we go and, and, and condemn everybody. The way we preserve is by preserving the, the, the integrity of the gospel even in our own lives, by living consistently to what we believe. And when we live to what we believe, guess what happens? That our influence eventually affects society. How we live in our lives affects the way we work, where we play, where we fellowship together. What will not work is just sheer legislation or, or large rallies. Those things may rile up the people. But what will work is that people who live their lives consistently with their faith in every sphere of life. Whether it's in the marketplace. Whether it's in your schools. And I think God calls us not to disengage. But cause us to engage with the consistency of living out the gospel in everyday life, no matter how hard it is. But he doesn't stop at salt. Because in many ways, salt is a passive influence, right? You just spread it around, and it does its work kind of uh, disseminated among the meat. But he says this, not only are you salt, the second analogy he gives is you are the light of the world. Now, why does he use this? analogy in verse 14 you are the light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl instead they put it on a stand it gives light to everyone in the house here's the thing about light light is meant to shine the purpose of light is to expose darkness the purpose of light is to demonstrate something is better than what darkness is now, have you ever been in darkness i mean complete darkness I remember uh, when I was a, a youth pastor, we went up to the San Bernardino Mountains. And it was, um, I had to, uh, one of the kids uh, had kind of straight over trying to find this kid. We didn't have a flashlight. Back then we had nothing, uh, cell phones uh, to light our way. And it was pitch dark. There was not a, we couldn't see stars. We couldn't see like, you know, the moon. And we were walking along this little trail. Uh, screaming, you know, for this kid to come back. Eventually, we found him. But as I was walking, you know, I had this eerie feeling that I was going to fall off a cliff. <laughs> I was walking along, and next thing, you know, I was always gripping my feet because I couldn't see what was in front of me. Just a little bit of light would have navigated me. The Bible says that in a hostile world, 
that the, in a world of darkness, and by the way, it is interesting that darkness was the word that the Bible uses to describe. It was a symbol of evil, deceit, impurity, a world without God. That's the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of light is the opposite of that. And as the world gets darker, ironically, the light gets lighter. If you've ever been in a completely dark room and you just have a little bit of light, it illuminates the whole room. And I believe that that's what God calls us to do is to illuminate, uh, illuminate by an active influence. And so how do we do that? Number one, we light God's attributes. In other words, we demonstrate the reality of God, the attributes of God, of, of kindness, of gentleness, self-control, all these things that flow out of God's character, his love, his compassion. We are to like the world through demonstrating the character and the attributes of God. The only way, in some ways, the best way to prove the existence of God is not philosophical arguments. The best way to prove the existence of God is the way in which you live. R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian, said something that has always stuck with me. He said this, there's a difference between believing in God and believing God. Think about this. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God. See, there are a lot of people who believe in God. But Christians are called not to just believe in God. We're called to believe God. To believe Him for your present. To believe Him for your future. To believe that He can change the situation and the circumstance. That, that our God is bigger than any circumstances around us. Which one are you? Do you just believe in God intellectually? Or do you believe in do you believe God? Second thing we're called to do is, is to demonstrate not only his attributes, but we, but we can easily lose our, uh, our light by hiding, by being silent. Notice what he says here. You are the light of the world. A, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In other words, the worst thing that we as Christians can do is just to hide, to be silent. There's a time and a place for us to speak out. And it's important that we do, not maybe on a Facebook forum or on the internet, but, but to demonstrate in, 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 with kindness and with salty words the reality of God. And, and again, I think we have to demonstrate our, our belief. And oftentimes what we uh, sort of say is we condemn. That's not what this passage I think is talking about. The way we shine our light is to be positive about what God is and who God is, uh, uh, the good news of the gospel. And that's why the gospel is good news. We proclaim the light by demonstrating the reality of God and of not being afraid, not being able to speak up at work, to say a word of encouragement and kindness to an employee. So often Christians run in fear of that. I think there's a right way to say things, to give an answer for what you believe. But there's a, a last thing here that I think is important. Notice this in verse 16. In the same way, how do, how do you shine your light? He goes, let your light shine before men with what? With good works. So that the world may see and praise your heavenly Father in heaven. So from a practical sense, how do we demonstrate light? And here's why this is active. It's active influence because we demonstrate our, the reality of our faith by what we do. You never separate faith, intellectual faith, by, by uh, active faith. 
And when we live out our lives by helping those who are hurting, praying for those who are sick, we are actually engaging in the world around us in a positive way. D.A. Carson says this, Christians uh, uh, should be the ones who refuse uh, uh, to rob their employers by being lazy on the job or rob their employees by succumbing to greed and stinginess. They're the first ones to help a colleague in difficulty, last to return a hostile reply. They honestly desire the advancement of others and and uh, honestly dislike people that use uh, crass humor. Transparent in their honesty, genuine in their concern, they reject both the easy answer of the doctrinaire politician and the laissez-faire stance of the selfish secular man. That the way we demonstrate good works is to be good in your job, is to be righteous in your integrity, to not cheat and steal. Because I think that when we are demonstrating the work of God in our lives, that we demonstrate the reality of God. The world needs one thing that is obvious. The world needs love, right? They want to feel that they're connected to something bigger. If there's one characteristic for Christians, Jesus said this in John 13, 34, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I think good works is demonstrates the love of God. So how are you in being salt and light? How are you in demonstrating the reality of God? It's not just through the preaching of your word, but also the preaching of your life. And oftentimes when the world sees goodness, by the way, when I talk about good works, I'm not talking about those who do good to you. Any pagan could do that, Jesus says. If somebody uh, says nice things to you, you could say nice things to them. Jesus says even the pagans do that. No. Can you bless those who curse you? Can you help those who slander you? Because if you can do that, if you demonstrate good works to those who are hostile to faith, then what you do is you win them over through the winsomeness of the reality of faith. I'm going to close with one last story. Jack had been president of a large corporation and um, lived his life in absence of God, didn't care about God, but occasionally went to church um, because his family said, hey, let's go to church. And one day, Jack developed cancer. And he was diagnosed uh, with something that was terminal. So you know what his company did? This company dumped him. Because that's kind of what the world does when you're not useful. He went through his insurance, his life savings, and had nothing left. The pastor uh, had heard about this guy, Jack. And one of the deacons decided, you know what? Even though he's not a member of our church, let's go visit him. So they went to visit Jack. And they said, Jack, can we speak with you? Um, you know, you speak so openly about your belief of life and how life has left you. Can we ask you a question? Have you prepared for life beyond death? Jack stood up, livid, with rage. And he said, you blankly blank Christians, all you ever think about is going to well, ha- happen to me after I die. If your God is so great, why doesn't he do something about the real problems of this life? He wanted to tell us 
that he went to tell them about how, how he was going to leave his wife without a, a penny, how his daughter w- w- had no money to go to college, and he started screaming, and, and he told us to get out of the house. The deacon and the pastor left. And as they were talking, the deacon said, Pastor, let's go back. Let's talk to Jack. So a few days later, they went back to talk to Jack. And the pastor sat down and said, Jack, I'm sorry. I know I offended you. I humbly apologize. But I want you to know something. After our conversations, I've been working at what you said. Your first problem is where your family will live after you die. A realtor in our church has agreed to sell your home and give your wife the commission on the house. And I guarantee you, if you permit us, some other men and I will take the, make the house payments until it is sold. Then I've contacted the owner of an apartment down the street, and they've offered your wife a three-bedroom apartment plus utilities for $850 a month for collecting rent. And the income from that will also pay for your daughter's college. Jack cried like a baby when he heard this. Even though Jack never became a Christian, he felt the reality of God. And later on after he passed, his wife, in response to that, trusted Christ. And I think about this story, and it reminds us as Christians that it's easy to be a Christian when everybody's a Christian. It's easy to be a Christian when everybody says, hey, that's a good thing to do. But the way in which we are to live in a world that is in opposition is to demonstrate the reality of God in the midst of that opposition. Not by demonstrating hostility, but instead demonstrating generosity and love.